preaching through the book of, of Thessalonians, the first three chapters have to do with uh, personal reflection as Paul, he's thinking about the church, he's talking about the church, he's talking about the believers there. He's talking about the, the personal ref, reflection about the church in the first three chapters. And now he comes to chapter 4 and 5. And chapter 4 and 5, he's going to give some personal instructions. For instance, if you go to the verse 1 there in chapter 4, he says, finally. Now, the finally is almost like, okay, in conclusion. The, the, the thing is that the conclusion lasts two chapters. And this is personal instruction. He has a reflection as he thinks back. And remember, he tells them, as you know, as you remember, and as I remember, and I think of you, as I pray for you, that was personal reflection. Now he's coming to some specific personal instruction to them. May have been some areas in which they were struggling, some difficulties they had, and may have and, and been some areas of anticipation of struggles and issues that they may have had. So, verse 1 and 2 then. Let me just read through those. Finally, my brethren, as he comes to personal instruction. Finally, my brethren, we urge and exhort uh, in the Lord that you ought to abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is, this is these instructions. Now he's going to follow through in these next two chapters. This is a means of introduction particularly to this section that we're dealing with. Slavery provided people with the leisure time to indulge their depraved desires. Immorality, graft, greed, drunkenness, corruption. It was a way of life. It was very acceptable. It was what the term, to use the term that has come about now, is it was the new norm. That was the way it was, it was, and everybody just lived that way. A little bit going back to what Lance was talking about with people, the failure to follow through. Well, that was a way of life under communism. There was no goal. There was no reason to follow through. It was the new norm. And to change that culture is very difficult, to change that thinking. Their lifestyle was interwoven with their pagan, their religious practices. So you take all that graft and immorality and greed and drunkenness and corruption, you put a religious tag on it, it even made it, made it more okay. So you have, this, you have the, the atmosphere in, within the Roman Empire, which... In a city, international city like Thessalonica, it even became more pronounced. Two things I want you to notice here. First of all, Paul's, well, well, two things about this. And that's Paul's intensity. He says, I urge and exhort. The word urge there is, uh, uh, take, I want you, on one hand, I want you to take a step back, take, take a deep breath, and examine yourself. I urge you to do this. Uh, it would be very similar to beseech, as we see in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore. I urge you, therefore. The, the intensity of it, it's, it, it raises that level to not a passing glance, but you are intensely staring at this to get the feel for it, to get the understanding of it. And the word exhort, this is to appeal to your head and your heart. I urge you, I, with intensity, both with your head, your thinking, and with your heart, your emotions, your feeling. I want to engage, as Paul's saying, I really want to engage you in both areas. And, and I, I'm, I'm trying to, if I, the best word I can find is intensity, the intensity of it. The focus and, and the involvement in it. It's not just a passing by glance. So he says, I urge and I exhort you. And then he brings this, the instruction, this is how you ought to walk to please God. 
verse four and two, 1 and 2, he says, it's not a new appeal. Just as you have received. The instruction he's giving him them in verse chapter 4 and 5, this is not a new appeal. This is something that he apparently already communicated to them before he's now putting it in writing. He says, it's not a request, but a duty. This word ought could be in translated must. It's, it's, it, uh, it's a strong focus. And it's not two separate or distinct activities. To walk, in our English, it comes across as to walk and to please God. And we think, okay, to walk, and also I'm to please God. In the Greek, it comes across this way. My walking is God-pleasing. Or my walking is to be God-pleasing. Which brings me back to the title of the message, is God-pleasing conduct. Walk is a way of life. Walk is my conduct. Walk is progress. But as I walk, very much entwined, not two separate entities, but very much entwined with each other is the aspect of my, have a God-pleasing walk. So as he instructs us in these last two chapters, specifically as we get into this area here, he's, he's instructed us to have a God-pleasing walk. Now, the first 12 verses. I'm not looking at all in the day. I don't have time. We're just going to look at the first eight. But if you look at, if you read through the, the scripture, even this week, if you think about these three things, he's going to talk to them about a walk of holiness. He's going to talk to them about walk in harmony. And he's going to talk about them a walk in honesty. Those are the three things he deals with in those first 12 verses. We, if we're to have a God-pleasing walk, we're going to walk in holiness. If we're to have a God-pleasing walk, we're going to walk in, in uh, harmony. If we're going to have a God-pleasing walk, we're going to walk in honesty. Were those three areas uh, he's specifically addressing issues at the church of Thessalonica? Possibly. But that's why I said earlier that it may also be a forewarning that by the inspiration of God moving upon him what to write, that this may be something that they were going to have to face next week or the week after that. So, is this an issue that you're facing, possibly? Or it's an issue that you may face? So we're, what we're looking at this morning is just the walk in holiness. First of all, in verse 3, the first part of verse 3, a divine plan. Uh, by the way, I want you to notice the progression. Uh, and, and I think you'll see it as Back in verse 1, he says, this is an urgent repeal. I, urgent appeal, I urge and exhort you. The last half of verse 1. It's a duty to perform, ought. Then in chapter, verse 2, he says, it's orders to follow, commandments. And now we get to verse 3. It's a, spe- a specific obligation. It's an urgent appeal. It's a duty to perform. It's a command to follow. And now it's a specific. He, 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 brings it, he takes it in the big funnel, and he brings it down to one specific area. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Now, is this the only will of God? Is this the only, I mean, if you think about the will of God, is this the only, man, if this is all I have to be concerned about, then I don't have to worry about anything else, or I don't have to be concerned about what God is leading and working in my life in some other way. This is, this is, this is not the whole will of God. Now, let me explain myself. In Scripture, there are precepts, which are commands. Now, they are definitive they are very clear. They are very precise commands given in Scripture. Example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Same book, next chapter, verse 5. If you look at verse 16, 
he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. So what is the will of God? For this is the will of God. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. That's a precept. That's a definitive, clear-cut command. I don't have to pray about this. I know exactly what that means and what I'm to accomplish to perform God's will. All right, you follow me? That's a precept. There's also a principle. The principle is this. This is an established truth that is affirmed throughout Scripture. This, a, a principle is an established truth that's affirmed throughout Scripture. So we have a pre- precept, command, and we have a principle. This is an established truth. For instance, Christian service. There's no necessarily no clear-cut command that says, this is the will of God that you serve him. But there are scriptures that relate to that. For instance, Ephesians 2.10. Right after following the 2.8 and 9 about, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's service. Now follow along. Remember, this is an established truth. In other words, if I say an established truth, that means it's going to be affirmed in other scriptures So because we, we compare scripture with scripture, the Bible, its own best commentary. Then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, a little more definitive. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that from the Lord you will, you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. And finally, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. A living sacrifice, living service. So there's the principle of service. That's also God's will. You, you follow me? Now, in this text, it is, this is God's will. In this text. This is a precept. This is a command. Your sanctification. This, the root word here for sanctification is, is hagias, which we use as holy. In fact, later in this text, the same word that's translated as sanctification is also translated holiness. And, and sometimes you'll see them used interchangeably in that way. Your sanctification, to be consecrated to God, to be holy, to be set apart from sin unto a holy God. This is, again, this is a very, as this a command is very definitive, this is very specific and, and something we can grab a hold on and say, okay, to be set apart from sin unto a holy God. To be holy. First Peter chapter 1, I think it's verse 15. It says, be holy as I am holy. Again, that's a command. That's a precept. So, for this is the will of God. You don't have to pray about this. This is what you need to do. And, and to, to go back to chapter or verse 1 and 2, that urgency, that urge and exhort you, that you, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you be holy. Second, then, he, then in verse 3, he not only give us, gives us that divine plan, but he gives us a divine application. Remember I talked to you about the funnel? You fill the funnel at the top, and as it narrows down, uh, when we were on the farm uh, many years ago, uh, we, we would, rather than take the tractor and drive it all the way back into 
the farmhouse, farmstead, and fill it up with diesel fuel, we would bring out five-gallon drums or five-gallon um, diesel fuel drums or buckets of, of diesel fuel. And we would take a funnel, a huge funnel, put it on top of the uh, diesel fuel hole, and then that funnel would narrow down to the hole itself, and we would dump, dump the diesel fuel into it. This is what's happening. He, he is taking us from this large funnel. He's narrowing it down to be very specific. This divine application. You shall abstain from, specifically, sexual immorality. Those three things. It's personal. You. It's real easy for me, as I think it probably is easy for you, to sit there and think about someone else that may even be here or someone who may have, should be here or someone who was here. This is very personal. It's you. You shall abstain from sexual immorality. This is you need to put yourself under the microscope and examine yourself in light of this precept. It is a responsibility to abstain. That word abstain means to hold off. It's like uh, in football. Thank, thank God football season's here again. My, my depravity, my, I'm a football snob. That's, I'd rather watch football than something else. Okay? Thank God football's here. I didn't get any amends, but that's okay. <laughs> but you will see in football they, they have a stiff arm. They stiff arm to hold the tackler off. Uh, notice several things. One, somebody's pursuing you. There may be contact, but by God's grace, you're seeking to abstain from it. You're seeking to avoid it and continue to make progress towards the goal. When he says to them, it's personal, it's a responsibility to abstain, you shall abstain from sexual immorality. You're pushing it off. There's going to be contact. You can't avoid it in our culture. It's awful. It permeates every aspect of it. You're going to have contact with it, but you abstain from it. You push it off. So you can make progress. It's also identifiable. What? Sexual immorality. Those things that are totally opposite of holiness. The word uh, translated there is pornea. We get our word pornography. Uh, It's a very broad term. It's a very expansive term. It doesn't uh, mean just fornication. It doesn't mean just adultery. It's used in a broadest sense and includes all forms of sexual sins. Homosexuality. And it, forms, it includes all those things. Hold yourself off. You shall abstain from sexual immorality. Let me read what Edmund Hebert wrote. And, and just follow, it's kind of a long reading, but just think through as I, as I read, as he writes a comment about these, these, this verse. He says, Sexual immorality was one of the most conspicuous forms of immorality in all areas of the pagan world. It was regarded as a matter of indifference and even defended as a necessity of nature like eating and drinking. The well-known proneness proneness of the pagan gods to sensuality had a degrading influence on public morals. Fornication received ritual sanction in some of the religious cults of the day. Adultery was a common subject of poetry and all the arts were employed to make it a pleasing and seductive practice. The strong position of the New Testament against impurity in all forms shows that Christianity did not adapt its moral standards 
to the practices of contemporary society. Its moral demands stand in stark contrast to the immoral practices of that day. The Christian church insisted that abstinence is an essential and ever-present need for the development of personal holiness and God-pleasing conduct. Unlike the pagan cults, it refused to tolerate, much less foster, immoral practices among its members. Its, de- its demands for chastity root in the fact that the body of the Christian belongs to God and is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm paraphrased a comment made by William Barclay. He said the 21st cent- century new morality is the first century immorality brought up to date. The new norm, the new morality. It is acceptable for couples to live together before they get married. That's a common practice. That's the new morality. Fast becoming the new morality is the promotion of gay marriages. This is a society, this is the culture that we live in. That's the new morality. And it, and it must not be brought into the church. And Paul's urging them, he's exhorting them to make sure that they don't get uh, absorbed into the culture and the cultural new norm, the new morality. The 21st century new morality is that first century immorality brought up to date. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, great verse, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Let it not be even named among you. Let it not be named among us, even as is fitting for the saints. Some divine instruction here in verse 4 and 5. There's positive and negative. Okay, There's positive instruction, negative instruction. Verse 4, positive. Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification. The word know is in the present tense. It simply means this. Purity is not a momentary impulse. I heard one time a pastor was saying, you know, it's amazing how in 20 minutes, a pastor who's been faithful to the ministry for 40 years can undo that 40 years of faithfulness because of a 20-minute stupid decision. It's amazing how you can undermine your credibility because some of act of sexual immorality in a moment, in a second. Each of you should know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification. No, present tense, purity is not a momentary impulse, it's a habit. It's a way of life. Possess has to do pursue, to struggle, to master. It's like a... uh, um, an apprentice electrician. He's learning the process how to master electricity and how to work it. A master craftsman, uh, a woodworker or a mechanic. And you know where you where you are where you are today in your Christian life should not be the same place you were five years ago. Because you're continuing to grow in your Christian life and mature in your faith and even in the area of sanctification of personal purity, holiness. You know how you ought to possess your vessel. Specifically, I believe the context has to do with your body. One time I had a discussion with uh, when I was at working at Clearwater Christian College with one of the students. 
And he wanted to argue about certain areas of Christian living, uh, biblical truth. And I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to argue with you. You know. I said, you know what is right. Listen, when you put, listen, when you and I have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but we've been indwelt by the Spirit of God, and part of the responsibility of the Spirit of God is to teach us and to guide us. And, and you, listen, just like I know, you know what is right. Each of you should know how to possess your, your own vessel in sanctification. That's a positive. The negative is this, verse 5, not in passions, passion of lust, like the Gentiles who knew not God. Not like the world. Not like in those passions of lust. And the Gentiles here is not the derogatory term of they're not Jews. Gentiles is the aspect of those who are not saints, those who are unbelievers. Those passions, that's the violence of feeling, that emotions. It's ungoverned. He said not in passions. There's nothing holding them back. Uh, many times in a moving truck or moving vans, they have a governor on the engine so it cannot exceed a certain speed limit. That way they cut down their accidents that they have on their moving vans. Well, what he's saying is this is ungoverned. There's no limit to it. You've allowed your pas- passions to run amok. They're out of control. Lust. If the passions wasn't strong enough, he gives you a double barrel, he hits you with a second barrel, he says, by the way, lust. Not in passions of lust, active desire, cravings, longings. And listen, we're, we're, living in a, we're living in a microwave culture. I want it now, and I want it right now. And nothing's going to stand in my way from getting it right now. We're in, we're in the drive-through culture. We want immediate gratification. The passions, the lust, the Gentiles, govern, who are governed by their passions and lusts. Okay, I said all that to say this. What's the point? First of all, we need to exercise self-discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Paul gets here to the chapter 9, and he says, Do you know that those who run in a race run all? He uses an illustration from a sporting event. But one receives the prize. Run such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. Now, the word temperance means self-controlled. In all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. In other words, um, as you, if you looked at a track, for every lane that is outside the inside lane, you run four yards further. If you're eight, yard, if you're eight uh, lanes out, you're going to run 32 yards further than the guy on the inside. That's why they have what's called staggered starts. That's the reason for that. And what he's saying is, therefore I run thus. Now, they do it to obtain perishable crown, but we for an imperishable. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. I stay within my lane. I'm not running willy-nilly all over the track. I'm temperate in how I run. That I fight... And he uses the boxing here, not as one who beats the air. He said, I'm not shadow boxing. I'm in a life and death struggle. Verse 27 is the key then. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached others, I myself should become disqualified. 
Divine instruction. Exercise self-discipline. We have a responsibility to exercise self-discipline. Secondly, Proverbs 4, 23 to 27. Great verses. If you have a chance to look at them later again today, I would certainly encourage you. But have safeguards in place. Uh, and, and let me use this illustration, then I'll read through this. Uh, I had a missionary uh, friend that was, was with, with, had come to visit us. And we were, you know, you know in Florida... Everybody exercises. And sometimes they don't dress very modestly. We were driving down the road, and I could see coming up, there was a lady coming who was running. Out of the corner of my eye, as I was, kept my eyes straight ahead, as I was driving, I watched the missionary who was sitting beside me. And the closer we got, the more he turned and looked the other way. He was setting a guard up. He was not opening himself up in any way. He was looking the other way, on purpose. Keep your heart, that is your mind, your emotions, with all diligence. Don't let them run wild. For out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Set a guard before your lips. Think through what you're going to say and how you're going to say it, and is it appropriate? And perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. You are like the horse that they ran with the blinders on. You're not, you're not going to be sidetracked. You're not going to be drawn, drawn away. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Set a guard, Lord, before my heart. Set a guard up before my mouth. Set a guard before my eyes and my path of my feet. And Lord, help me to follow through and, and follow that uh, guard that you set up. Let me, Lord, be in a rut. Because when your tires get in a rut, it's hard to turn out of that rut. Let me be in a godly, holy rut. To have safeguards in place. Third thing, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15 to 20. To understand that many, that my body doesn't belong to me. That's a, that is not acceptable in our culture. It's all about me. But as a Christian, we need to understand that my body does not belong to me. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you realize that? When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, through the, through the, uh, the Holy Spirit has indwelt you. Not only is the Holy Spirit in you, but you're in Christ. You're not your own. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly, for, certainly not. Or in another translation, says, God forbid, what are you thinking? Those are, that's just crazy thinking. Certainly not. Or do you know, not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And notice verse 18. Flee, flee sexual immorality. Pornea. Flee it. Later in our scripture, I think it's in James, it says, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. But when it comes to the area of sexual immorality, you are to flee it. You are to run away from it, stiff arm it, and keep going towards the goal. Every sin that a man does outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The fourth thing, to be an instrument of righteousness. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 and 13, it says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, 
that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You and I are to yield ourselves, present ourselves, surrender ourselves to be instruments of righteousness. To be holy, to be pure. And then 1 Corinthians 10.31, to rejoice in the opportunity to glorify God. Do we really rejoice in the aspect, the possibility that we could glorify God? That That our life will glorify God? That our life can glorify God? That our life should be glorifying God? Do we rejoice in that? Does that bring joy to us? You know, you know what brings the joy to us? Happiness. Happenstance. If it's good for me. No, does this good for God? Does this please God? Will this honor God? Will this glorify God? Not me. To rejoice in the opportunity to glorify God. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Whatever you do. Whatever you do. Do all. And all means all to the glory of God. So that divine instruction. Exercise self-discipline. Have safeguards in place. Understand that my body doesn't belong to me. To be an instrument of righteousness. To rejoice in the opportunity to glorify God. Verse 6. There's a divine warning. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger of all as we also forewarned you and testified. This is a warning. This is not a threat. This is not a threat that the hammer is going to fall, but it is a warning it could fall. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 8. The law of sowing and reaping. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he that soweth to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And he that sows the Spirit, will the Spirit reap life everlasting. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all. The bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Put to death, necros, kill it. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon some of the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked and lived in them. This is what you used to be. But yet as he writes here to these Christians at Colossae, he's saying, have you put these things to death yet? Are you still nurturing them, embracing them? Are you still carrying them with you? The wrath of God is coming. God will judge. So it's a divine warning. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. God is. God is a righteous judge. Why do you think he had to send Christ? Could you ever... Um, satisfy God? Could you on your own ever get into his presence? What, what, was, what was the barrier? Because he's righteous. He's holy. And the only way that you can get into his presence is to have a substitute, a sin substitute to, in your place. So Christ, he sent Christ who became our sin substitute 
and satisfied God's holy demands, God's righteous demands. And so, yes, we can go into his presence now because we're in Christ. He is a righteous judge. Divine warning, divine purpose, verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Wow. Two bookends. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. One bookend. Second bookend, verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. If you miss the first bookend, you can't miss the second. God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. This call is a divine call. This is a conversion call. In holiness, that is the purpose, one of the purposes. Why he called us. Marks the contrast from where we were to where we are now. From external to internal change. From a negative to what we were, to the positive, to what we ought to be. God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. God saved us from our sin to a life of holiness. Listen, I'm not making this up. You understand that? I'm not picking on you. I preach to you, I preach to myself. Do you really understand that we've been, when we were saved, it's to, to a life of holiness? In Romans chapter 6, we already read 6 verses 12 and 13, but Romans chapter 6, one of the things, the, was the questioning that was going on by some of the believers at, uh, uh, in Rome, at the church there, and in that area, and Paul's writing them, he says in verse 1, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a question. And he says, God forbid. Later in that same chapter, Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. What are you thinking about? God has saved us from our sin, out of our sin, to a life of holiness. I'm not going to continue. He didn't save me from my sin to continue to live in sin. Yes, I'm going to be pursued. Yes, I'm going to have contact. But you know what? I'm going to avoid it at every cost. I'm going to keep going towards a goal because he saved me to a life of holiness. A divine gift. Verse 8, therefore he who rejects this does not reject man. You're not rejecting me. You're not rejecting my message, but God's message. I don't take it personally. I'm very concerned for you. I pray for you. Therefore he who rejects this, this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit, this is, this is interesting, I found. The literal translation is, he's given us the Holy Spirit, comma, the holy. In case you missed it, the Holy Spirit, at the time of salvation, indwells us. He has given us the Holy Spirit, the holy. Part of the responsibility of the Holy Spirit is to guide us, teach us, direct us, Convict us, be the controlling influence in us. And why would that be? And how would that be? Directing us to what? Guiding us to what? Directing us, convicting us about what? Holiness. Because He's holy. The Holy Spirit, the Holy One. The Holy Spirit, who's sent to us by a holy God. 
God not only called us to holiness, but he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable us to live a life of holiness. Even, even in your most unholy moment, the Spirit of God is working in you to draw your attention to the fact of that most unholy moment. To draw you back to a holy God who is a righteous judge, who has a righteous standard, who is holy. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring you and I to that place. Let me conclude with this. Remember the book ends? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but he called us to holiness. Those are the bookends, front end, back end. What should be between? Have you established a hedge of holiness? Going back to Proverbs chapter 4. Have you, have you established a hedge of holiness? Well, I just live my life and let it come as it may. Do you have a plan? The what if? Flee! Establish that hedge of holiness. Let me just make some suggestions. Protect you from evil attitudes. Man, there's nothing that permeates our society greater than that than just an evil attitude. You shouldn't be part of that. A hedge of holiness to protect you from evil to protect you from evil passions. It's just it's it's acceptable. I mean, you've you've run into people like that and said, "Well, that's just the way I am." Listen, if you name the name of Christ, that's not just the way you are. You have Christ through the Spirit of God that dwells within you. You've been changed truly, have you? Are you naming the name of a saint? To protect you from evil passions. To protect you from evil behavior. To protect you from evil people. To protect you from the evil one. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And I've told you this before. As I pray for my children, my family, as I pray for the Faith Bible Church, as I pray for you individually, I pray that God would put up a hedge of holiness round about you to protect you from evil, evil passions, evil attitudes, evil conduct, evil evil desires, the evil one. That holiness may become permeated. Do you need a transfusion of holiness? Hopefully this morning may act as as part of that transfusion transfusion fusion to you of holiness to get it running through your veins. It should already be there. But our, our society is corrupt. The new norm, the new morality is just the old immorality repackaged. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh. You sow to the spirit, you reap of the spirit. I don't live my life in fear of judgment. But at the same time, I know this. That if I live myself, my life outside the lines, outside the lane, judgment always has a potential. It may be only grace that he allows me to get back into line rather than beating me back into line. Holiness. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but he called us to holiness. Let's pray.
Father, we pray and thank you, God, that we can come to you. On one hand, a sensitive subject, but on the other hand, God, such a necessary subject to emphasize again the importance that you yourself place on this whole aspect of holiness. That we not take for granted that provision that is made to us through Christ. If, you, if you're here this morning, and again, I'm talking to Christians. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Ken, just pray for me in this area of holiness. You're not confessing some horrible sin to me. You're just saying, Lord, heighten my awareness to this whole area of holiness. Is there any, any like that, please? Yes. Any others? Yes. Others? Yes. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. You've never been saved. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But you'd like to have someone show you from the Word of God. Is there anyone like that? Father, we are so thankful that you are holy. We're thankful that you have bestowed upon us to indwell us the Holy Spirit, the Holy One. That, Lord, I pray that you will heighten our our passions for holiness, our desire and urgency of embracing holiness, then indeed, Father, that you may set a guide, a guard before our eyes, before our thoughts, before our lips, before our steps, a guard of holiness. Lord, I pray for Faith Bible Church. I pray for the ministries of Faith Bible Church, that there be a hedge of holiness round about it. You protect this ministry. Lord, I pray for these families. I pray for these individuals. I pray for these teens. I pray for these college students. I pray for these single individuals. Oh, God, I pray. You put a hedge of holiness. Purity. Around them. To protect them. Help them to abstain. To hold off. Help them to stay towards that goal of holiness. Not just in their walk, but that walk including their conversation, their conduct, their friendships, their relationships. Oh God, I pray that we as a church may it's itself not have a pious attitude, but Lord, a, a, a submissive, humble attitude of holiness, of seeking to please you, to glorify your name.